let's um, just bow our hearts and come humbly before his word together, shall we? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true. That, Lord, your word tells us everything that we need to know for living this life. Thank you, Lord, that your word reveals to us who you are. And your word reveals to us our Savior. And Lord, as we study this morning through this incredible account we have in the Gospel of John, Lord, stir our hearts. May it be as if we were there seeing these things, experiencing these things. Lord, let it be so powerful, Lord, that it changes the way that we live in this coming week. For, Lord, your word is living and powerful. And so, Father, we just commit to you this time. Speak to us, we ask, by your Holy Spirit now. And give us ears to hear, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we come this morning to the end of the Gospels as we have them, the Gospel of John. We've mentioned already that we have really a fourfold presentation of Jesus in these four Gospels. And John now, to conclude this, this group, presents Jesus as the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh. In a sense, although there's no obvious genealogy there, there is a genealogy presenting in the first few verses that shows that Jesus is pre-existent. He was there before the beginning began. And so we're going to see as we go through, John presents Jesus in this way. In uh, the great uh, study book or uh, tutorial, in a sense, what the Bible is all about, Henrietta C. Mears makes this comment. The theme of John's gospel is the deity of Jesus Christ. More here than anywhere else, his divine sonship is set forth. In this gospel we are shown the babe of Bethlehem was none other than the only begotten of the Father. There are evidences and proofs given without number. Although all things were made by him, although in him was life, yet he was made flesh and dwelt among us. No man could see God, therefore Christ came to declare him. That's a great little statement of what this gospel presents and the purpose of Jesus coming, to declare God to us. And John himself gives us his reason for writing. When we look at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John makes this statement, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So it's no surprise, the key word in the book itself is believe. We find it over a hundred times in various forms, believe, believest, uh, believing, all those derivatives. But to believe, and this is why John has given this account, that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh. The word in Greek, Pisteo, uh, it's to have faith in or upon with respect to a personal thing, or by implication, to entrust especially in this context, one's spiritual well-being to Christ. That's what this idea of believing is. So when we say we believe in Jesus, what we're saying is we're entrusting our spiritual well-being to Christ. Now, that may lead us on to the question, why should we entrust our spiritual well-being to Christ? Well, John gives us the answer to that as well. It's simply because Christ is God manifest in the flesh. Verse 14 of chapter 1 will tell us he's the word made flesh and dwelt among us. And that's why we can entrust our spiritual well-being. That's why we can believe in Jesus. It's not just believing that he lived or that he existed. It's believing in him, in who he is, in what he's accomplished. Now as we go through, (coughs) we see a number of things we'll observe. The time of writing, interestingly, uh, different commentators will say different things. Some place it earlier than this. Um, But I'm with those that suggest that the time of writing is somewhere 96 to 100 AD, right towards the end of uh, the the time of writing of the Bible itself. And it would appear to be sometime after John had returned from Patmos. You remember John had been exiled to Patmos, and whilst he was there on that island, uh, just off Greece, um, he there received the vision that we have recorded in the book of Revelation. And after that, John seemingly returns to Ephesus. It's where he'd been a pastor of the church. 
But when he returns, he realizes that this Gnostic heresy had now started creeping in to the church, very much coming from Alexandria and Egypt, but spreading throughout the Christian world at that time. And really it was denying that Jesus was God, saying that Jesus was a great person, but he wasn't actually God. Well, in 1 John chapter 2, one of John's epistles, seemingly also written round about this time, he makes the point there, verse 21, I have not written unto you because you uh, know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. And then he says, who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father, but he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Just showing this, this bond, this inextricable link, uh, that you can't separate between the Father and the Son. In John, in his Gospel, in chapter 10, verse, verse 30, he says, I and my Father are one, of the same substance. Now, when we look back in the Old Testament, we find some interesting statements that are made. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, we read there, Thus says the Lord... Okay, and you notice in the, in the King James, most modern versions do the same thing. They'll capitalize in the English when in the, in the Hebrew uh, we'd have had the, the name of God, uh, Yahweh, Jehovah. Uh, the, the Jews call this the Tetragrammaton, these four letters. Um, so when you see capital O, capital O, uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in the original text, you've got the name of God um, actually given there. So thus says God, the Lord, uh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Now, it's interesting just that. We could study this for, for a while. But he says, I am the first and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. Well, when we turn to the book of Revelation, again, John being the author of this, speaking of the vision he has of Jesus, as he sees Jesus, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And just here in case that you're in any doubt, in chapter 2, verse 8, we read, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Now, it's very clear that if God is the first and the last, which is what Isaiah tells us, and there is no other God, and that Christ is the first and the last, and in this context in Revelation, this has to be talking of Jesus, because it speaks of one who is dead and is alive now. If both of those statements are true, Christ must be God. Back in Isaiah 43 verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Saviour, says God. Now, when we look at Isaiah 45, we see the same thing stated for us. Who has declared from ancient time, who has told it uh, from that time, have not I the Lord, and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a saviour. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be you saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Very, very clear statement that God alone is the one who saves us. But in John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 42, we read, And they said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy sayings of the woman at the well, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. So in Isaiah we're told that God alone is the Saviour. But here in John's Gospel, and repeated, this is just one example, we find that Jesus, therefore, is the only Saviour. For both of those statements to be true, Jesus has to be God. Back in Isaiah 42 verse 5, Thus says God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which came out of it, He that gives breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. Now, we're told here that God is the one that's created everything. He's the creator. And yet we go to John's Gospel. And in chapter 1 we read there, All things were made by Him, by Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 10 picks up the theme and says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. So once again, Isaiah tells us that God alone is the creator. But we're told repeatedly in the New Testament, we can turn to Colossians and other passages, where we're told that Jesus is the creator. For both of those statements to be true, Jesus has to be God. Now, C.S. Lewis made this uh, really quite clear, logical statement. Because so many people will argue, and just as the Gnostics were arguing way back then, so today people will say about, oh, Jesus, is, he was a good teacher, he was a good man, he was a good religious leader, or whatever else. Well, C.S. Lewis got 
succinctly says this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. C.S. Lewis also says, you can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Once again, John's presentation of the deity of Christ is clear. We read in the the opening verse of the Bible, in the beginning, this is in the the Hebrew, we have in the beginning, Elohim. And then we have two untranslated letters in the Hebrew, an Aleph and a Tau, which is equivalent to an Alpha and Omega, the first and the last letters of the alphabet. So, to literally translate the opening verse of the Bible, you have, in the beginning, Elohim, the Alpha and Omega, created the heavens and the earth. That's what you have in the Hebrew text. In Genesis 1.26, let us create. This is the Godhead speaking. This is not God speaking to angelic beings, but Father, Son, and Spirit working in unison. The word Elohim itself is a plural noun, but it's used as a singular, speaking of God, and yet the three parts of the Godhead. There's a song that uh, the children have been singing, and we might try and do it with the children here sometime. But there's a line in the song just talking that, that God's not dead, he's alive. And there's a, a line that says one plus one plus one equals one. I know mathematically that baffles us a little bit, but that's the way it is with the Godhead. There is just one God, but Father, Son, and Spirit. We also find that in the Old Testament we have repeated appearances of God manifest in some sort of physical form. Angel of the Lord appears to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. The angel of the Lord appears to Joshua. The angel of the Lord also appears countless times throughout the Old Testament. And we also have, even in the, the Garden of Eden, the voice of the Lord walking in the garden. How can a voice walk? Well, this is the Word of God, the voice of God. God manifests in a physical form. These are sometimes referred to as Christophanies, a pre-incarnate version of Jesus Christ or vision of Jesus Christ seen throughout the Old Testament. A physical manifestation of God, if you like. But we're told in the book of Hebrews, and we were looking at this as our Bible study on Thursday evening, that Christ is the final and ultimate manifestation of God. God manifests in the flesh to reveal to us who God is. John makes this statement in John 1, that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Again, that Jesus has come to reveal to us who God is, God's nature, God's character. And Jesus is God in the flesh. So it's interesting just to note some of the things that therefore we find omitted from John's gospel because you understand therefore that, that John is not trying to present just a, a sequence of events or a historical narrative as we often find the other gospel writers doing. John has a very specific purpose for writing his gospel. We find that his birth is not referred to in the gospel of John. His boyhood, the temptation in the wilderness, his transfiguration, the appointing of the twelve disciples isn't referred to. The parables, we don't find them recorded in John's Gospel. The Ascension isn't there either. And the Great Commission isn't there. But John's Gospel is not there to give us these things. It's there to present Jesus as God in the flesh. Interestingly, and we see this throughout the book of Revelation, anybody who's read Revelation can't have helped to notice that it's replete with sevens all the way through. And this is often referred to as a heptadic structure, just referencing the, the number seven. Well, we see this all the way through John's Gospel. There's seven I am statements. There's seven miracles that are recorded. Seven witnesses uh, that we find presented. There's seven times the word metatauta in the Greek. It means after these things. It's a word that we find uh, used frequently in the book of Revelation. But seven times in John's Gospel we have that phrase. We also <clears throat> find, looking at the seven I am statements, that we've got these broken down. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. 
I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And I am the true vine. Now all of these statements are Jesus declaring himself to be God. The voice of the burning bush. Do you remember as Moses back in Exodus goes out and he goes to Midian. Not the Sinai Peninsula, he goes to Midian, the land of Saudi Arabia today. But he goes there, he's at the top of this mountain, he sees this bush that's not burning. And he asks God what God's name is. And God reveals himself as the I am, the self-existent one. And Jesus, seven times in John's Gospel, makes this statement, I am. Again, claiming himself to be God. And we've got to understand, this is why so frequently, and we see it in John's Gospel with real clarity, why the religious leaders of the day were so antagonistic towards Jesus, why they were so offended by the things that he was saying. As a result of the, the challenges they bring to him, the seven witnesses that we find presented in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist himself makes a statement that this is the Son of God. Nathaniel says, thou art the Son of God. Peter makes a declaration, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Martha, thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. And John himself makes a declaration, Jesus, uh, the Christ, the Son of God. And then finally, Jesus speaks of himself and says, I am the Son of God. So these seven witnesses, and it's interesting to study these and look at the context and the way that these are used to counter the arguments of those that would uh, try and uh, contradict. The miracles we see, well, water to wine. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Very interesting. The first miracle we, f- we find seemingly that Jesus does, uh, but the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the man at Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded, the walking on water, healing the blind man, and then the raising of Lazarus. But don't think these are just, you know, uh, randomly picked. Every one of these is, is picked for a specific reason. And as you study in depth through the John's Gospel, which we unfortunately don't have time for this morning, you'll see that every one of these is chosen for a specific reason. Well, there's lots of breakdowns that we can give of the Gospel of John. And if you go to any Bible commentary, they'll give you breakdowns of how the chapters uh, uh, play out and the different sections. But the simple way of understanding John's Gospel is there are two major divisions. It's very simple. We've got chapter 1 through 11, and they cover the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. And then we've got chapters 12 through to 21, and they cover just one week. It's the most important week in human history, the week we often refer to as Passion Week. And John gives us some incredible detail uh, about that, including the longest discourse we have uh, recorded, uh, the, uh, the Upper Room Discourse. We'll look at that briefly in a while. So let's just jump in and look at some highlights as we go through. Chapter 1. Well, we of course have the introduction uh, that John gives us, re- uh, d- explain to us that Jesus is the Logos. That's uh, the Greek word, it's just the, 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 where we get our word logical from, but it's it meaning information or the word, uh, who Jesus is. Christ's mission is then given to us, that he is to be the light of the world. And then Christ is unveiled, we'll see that, John the Baptist speaking of him. And then there's the first disciples are called, we don't see the calling of all twelve, but specifically the first disciples. We'll look at just in a moment at some of these things, and we'll look at the breakdown of the different types of callings, if you like, or the backgrounds these individuals come from, which is interestingly very representative of all those throughout the ages who would come to know Christ. So let's just have a look. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It doesn't get clearer than that. Of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses would try to put an A in there. The Word was a God, is uh, sometimes how they're trying to Uh, mistranslate that but it doesn't make sense because if you try and use that logic and you do it through the rest of the chapter the whole thing falls apart it just doesn't make any uh, grammatical sense whatsoever this is a statement that Jesus is God the same was in the beginning with God and literally what it's saying is when the beginning began the word was already there all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made Again, that word logos is reasoning in terms of thought and a word in terms of the expression of that thought. We're told that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. This is just a really interesting uh, point to study. We're told that in him 
was life and the life was the light of men. Well, we know, of course, that all life originates from God. Adam, as we know, was just a, a shell in a sense until God breathed life into him. And we're told in Genesis he became a living soul. But life itself, therefore, is a great light. The fact that we are alive is a great light, a great testimony to the existence of God. You know, the scientists and those that would reject the word of God, reject the Bible, you know, can't explain life. They've got no explanation of what actually is life and how does life originate. Even if you could demonstrate, which of course you can't, it's nonsense, we know, the steps that supposedly evolution lays out for us. And even if we could see evidence of one thing evolving into another, which of course we don't. But even if that were the case, how do you get life in the first place? It's absolutely impossible to go from non-life to life. But man, of course, has rejected that light. It doesn't that what we see in the world today. Well, that's why God had to be manifest in the flesh. To help us see and to lead us back from darkness, which is where we put ourselves, into life. We're told again, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. So life is the light of men. It should be that which gives us that clarity. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness comprehends it not. Well then picking up verse 7, we're told that John came for a witness to bear witness to the light. Speaking of course of Jesus, and that all men through Jesus might believe. John was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Jesus was the true light, which lights every man that comes into the world. All men, we're told in Romans 12.3, are given a measure of faith. And nobody can therefore say they don't have enough faith to believe. Because everybody's given enough faith. You know, the fact that we're alive is a good starting point. But we can go on from that. Everybody's got enough faith to believe. Nobody can say, I don't have enough faith, I can't believe. Then spoke Jesus again of them saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I just want to share with you something that from study years ago I stumbled across. I just think it's incredible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, we know there God said, let there be light and there was light. We're very comfortable, we're familiar with the verse of course. But it's interesting, if we look at that in the Hebrew and we actually break it down, what we have there is said Elohim, which is obviously God, be light, be light. You notice here we've got a repetition of the Hebrew words. This heya or, so be and then light, and then exactly the same word again. This is just a uh, connective in the Hebrew, but the same letters. If you don't know the letters, just look at the shapes. The same word again, be light. So in other words, said Elohim, be light, be light. That's what's actually in the Hebrew. So God said, let light be light. Or another way we could translate that. God said, let the light illuminate. Now, my contention is the light already existed. The light was pre-existent. And it's just at this point that God says, let light be light. Let light illuminate. And of course, it's consistent with what we find through the rest of Scripture. John, in his first letter, says that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. In the New Jerusalem, we know that there won't be the sun and the moon. We won't need anything because God himself will be the light. Light, therefore, was pre-existent in the person of Jesus Christ. And God commanded the light to shine. The light then simply illuminated. Jesus Christ, the pre-existent one, who is the light, created all things. And it's very interesting, we could talk about discoveries that quantum physicists have made, suggesting that actually everything could have been uh, created from light. And an interesting study you can do some other time if you want to. But another thing we're told in this is that we became, because of that which Christ accomplished, he came to his own, we're told, in verse 11, and they received him not. Speaking of the Jews, they rejected Christ, they rejected the witness that was given to them. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. This is an incredible statement. This phrase, the sons of God, we find throughout scripture. John chapter 113, verse 13, uh, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hebrews 12, 9 tells us that God is the father of spirits. The true life, we understand, is not physical 
but spiritual. That's where so many people stumble and fall. They think that life is about what happens in our physical bodies. That's not real life. Real life is spiritual, not physical. There's a great uh, quote I read yesterday, and it was just so good I thought I'd just include it here, by a chap called Bob George. It's actually uh, it's in the Evidence Bible. Uh, it's quoted. But it says, uh, Ever since Adam sinned, the earth has been the land of the walking dead, spiritually dead. What is the disease that killed man? Well, we're told the wages of sin is death. So from God's point of view, salvation involves the raising of spiritually dead men to life. But before God could give life to the dead, he had to totally eradicate the fatal disease that killed man, sin. So the cross was God's method of dealing with the disease called sin, and the resurrection of Christ was and is God's method of giving life to the dead. Well, this phrase, the sons of God, is speaking of a direct creation of God. In the Hebrew, it's Benai Ha Elohim. It's talking of a direct creation of God. It's used of angels in the Old Testament. They were a direct creation of God. Adam was a direct creation of God. We're actually made in the image and likeness of Adam. Because Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, the direct creation of God, we have bought Adam's identity, which is why we've inherited sin all the way down. But what God does and what Christ came to do was to allow us to be born again, to start a new life. And this new life, we've seen already that God is the Father of spirits. He gives us this new life. We are spiritually reborn. And John chapter 3 is really the chapter that deals with that. But in John's first uh, epistle, he says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not, because it knew not him. What a statement, that we've now been called the direct creation of God. We have been adopted into God's family, and because he has given us life through his Spirit, we've been reborn, literally reborn spiritually. This isn't just some mystical thing. We have a brand new birth spiritually, and we're now called the sons of God. Because we are born of God. Verse 14 of chapter 1. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. I mean you couldn't want a clearer statement of Christ's divinity than that. The eternal word. The logos. The expression of the Father. The image of the invisible God. This exact likeness that we read about and we were looking at on Thursday in the book of Hebrews. And this very act is the pinnacle of his grace, knowing, of course, that it will culminate in the cross. Well, we're told in, again, chapter 1, verse 29, The next day John, seeing Jesus coming unto him, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is a great statement in itself, because you remember back in Genesis... We have there the situation with Abraham. They're looking for uh, uh, something to be offered. Isaac asks the question, where is the offering? Abraham says, Isaac asks the question. Abraham, the father, responds and says, God will provide himself the lamb. And of course, they're looking, where is the lamb? Is the question that uh, Isaac asks. Well, they end up offering a ram. But some 2,000 years later, we find that as as John sees Jesus coming, he says, behold the lamb. This is the lamb that will be offered up, that takes away the sins of the world. It's the answer to the question that was asked way back in Genesis 22. We see again, Genesis 22 verse 7, Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the lamb of God. And John practiced what he preached. Pointing men to Jesus. We'll see later that John made this statement that he must increase, but I must decrease. That's the way it should be. You know, we're not here to get converts to our opinions. You know, sometimes we like to win the argument. I was, um, Sarah and Yana were chatting this morning. And they're absolutely right. I mean, Sarah was talking to somebody recently in, in part of the conversation. You know, we were just as you were saying to you this morning, sometimes we can you know, win the argument, but we might not win somebody's soul. And it's not about winning an argument. You see, so often we're keen to try and convert people to our opinions. And that's not what we're here for. We need to point men to Christ. And that is exactly what John did. A great example for us to follow. Well, in John, again, chapter 1, verse 38... 
Um, we, these two disciples, they hear Jesus speak and they follow Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto them, What seek you? What are you looking for? Now this is the first of the four different types of people that come to Jesus. They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to be interpreted Master, where do you dwell? He said, Come and see. And they came and saw where he dwelt and they abode with him that day for it was about the tenth hour, we're told. And what we've got here is the sincere seekers. You know, the first of four ways that people come to know Christ. They'd grown up believing. They'd been part of the Jewish religious system. They were already searching. And then the big question is, what actually are you looking for? How will you know when you find it? See, Jesus asks questions to make us think. If you ever noticed this in the Bible, you know, God and Jesus, they never ask a question because they're lacking information. God knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. See, there still had to be a moment of decision, even in the lives of these people who had grown up in a spiritual environment. They still had to come to that place of decision, what actually are you seeking? What is it you want? And when we come face to face with our own iniquity, we know that what we need is a saviour. And there still has to be a moment of decision. The second kind of group of people that we see, (coughs) we read verse 40, one of the two which heard John speak following him was Andrew and Simon, Peter, Simon Peter's brother. And he first finding his own brother Simon and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And we go on from there. Well, this is kind of personal testimony. This is another way that people come to know the Lord. It's the second of those four ways people come to the knowledge of Christ. It's the irrefutable power of personal testimony. We found the Messiah. You know, you may not feel that you've got all the tools to go out and argue from an apologetics position. But you know, you've got your own personal testimony. It's irrefutable. People can't deny what's happened in your own life. You have the experience of it. You know it's true. And this is how many people come to know the Lord, through the power of that personal testimony. Again, there still has to be a moment of decision for every individual and a personal response. The third type of example of how people come to know the Lord, we see verse 43. The following day, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, finds Philip, and said unto him, follow me. Now, this again, interesting, this is the ones that are hand-picked. There are people, and some of you this morning may have come to the Lord because the Lord just put his hand on you, and you knew that God was calling you. So this is like the third way. Jesus himself seeks them out. There's a number in scripture that we could highlight like this. In one sense, of course, it's true for all of us. We know that we've been, that Jesus came and found us. But there are specific people um, that we find. I mean, Luke 19, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So in one sense, a broad sense, it applies to all of us. But you've got Philip and the likes of Paul also, the road to Damascus, Paul's conversion. Jesus just appears to him. But interesting, they were both martyred. So, if the Lord has called you with that kind of personal calling, direct personal calling, I'm not saying you're going to be martyred, but they're very special kind of callings. And the Lord has very special ministries and roles for the people that he chooses in that way. And finally, Philip finds Nathaniel, verse 45, and says unto him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, and goes on from there. Now, this is really the fourth way. This is the appeal to evidence. We've got, just to recap, to bring you where we are here, we've got the people that have grown up in a kind of, for us, a Christian environment. But you still have to come to that place of decision. You've got those that have that personal testimony. Somebody will witness to you. You've got those who the Lord will directly call. And then you've got those who come to the Lord through knowledge, through the evidence there. And again, partly combined with testimony of others. But it's the evidence that's being presented. And of course we have God's two great witnesses, the law and the prophets. The two witnesses we read about in Revelation represent the law and the prophets. The law, of course, convicts men. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And the prophets, of course, convince men. Peter speaks of the more sure word of prophecy, greater than any physical experience. It's something we can demonstrate. We've got the evidence. And for some people, they need the evidence. And some people, that's the way that they come to know the Lord. In Acts chapter 1 verse 3, we're told that Jesus showed himself alive after his passion, after his death and resurrection, by many infallible proofs. Some people need that. So the Lord will bring people, wherever you are, God can reach you. God can bring people to him. Okay, don't worry, we're not going to spend as long on every chapter. 
chapter 2. I just want to just look at the first of the miracles that John gives us. This is incredible. Because the water to wine, we're very familiar with this. It's the first miracle that we find in Jesus' ministry. John seemingly is writing this some 70 years after the event. But it's amazing how much of the detail John remembers and records for us. First of all, we're told there's six water pots. Now, those water pots were set apart for the water of purification. Now, that's a reference back to the book of Numbers, chapter 19, if you want to go and look at and study what these water, water specifically was to be used for. But the pots themselves were made of stone. Why does John choose this miracle out of the seven miracles that he picks? There was, was countless miracles they could have chosen from, but John chooses this one. Well, because of what it tells us. John makes the point that that which he's presenting was manifesting God's glory. Well, this is how that works. Of course, there are no meaningless details in the Bible. Every number, every place, every detail is there by deliberate supernatural design. Six, if you study scripture, is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. Of course, 666 is the, the mark of the beast. We recognize that. So that's our first clue, that this is maybe just a little bit more than we see on the surface. So this seemingly is in reference to man, in reference to us. The first miracle that Jesus does in our lives, just as the first miracle that John records here, is to take a vessel that was intended originally to be set apart. But it had become empty and stone. And then it's filled with water. Very much like the water of the word. In scripture, the word is analogous and is a type of water all the way through. So the once empty vessel now brings forth fruit. Specifically, it's the fruit of the vine. The water is turned into wine. And we see, of course, this lovely lesson of the first miracle that happens when our own lives, these empty stone vessels, are filled with water that then brings forth fruit. Another lesson that we can see is that the world offers its best first. Of course, you recognize the situation with this feast. You know, the, the, uh, the head of the, the feast makes the comment, you know, that the, normally it's the best that's given first. And then the poison follows. That's what often happens in the world. That's the way temptation works. But God does it the other way around. He saves his best until last. Of course, we've got the new heaven, the new earth that is awaiting us. We're told in Psalm 30 verse 5 that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy, and so on. Then answer the Jews, just picking up verse 18. What sign showest thou uh, unto us, seeing that thou does these things? <laughs> so here we go again. And we see this a lot through the Gospels. What we've got is this, by what authority are you doing these things? Now we should always be mindful that we see these things. It's that, who gave you permission? And it's always those who were appointed by men question those who are appointed by God. And we see it time and time again through history. Those who are appointed by men question those who are appointed by God. And even with Jesus they were doing the same. Now, chapter 3, we're very familiar in John's Gospel. And Jesus, we read in verse 5, answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, speaking to Nicodemus, Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. First of all, we should note the verily, verily I say unto thee. That's like, get the importance of this. You know, it's not just I say unto thee. It's not verily I say unto thee, but verily, verily I say unto thee. This is like, okay, everybody, sit down, listen, pay attention. Jesus was trying to get the point across here. And two births are mentioned. We've got the natural birth, born of water, and the spiritual birth. Unless you are born naturally, and then again spiritually, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. For those who are born of the Spirit, well, we know, of course, in Adam, all die. First Corinthians reminds us of that. And the punishment for sin, therefore, was death. In the garden, we all died spiritually. And that quote earlier, we are, the world is full of the walking dead spiritually in that sense. So unless we are reborn spiritually, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We'll remain spiritually dead. But First Corinthians 5.22 also tells us, In Christ shall all be made alive. Of course, we've seen already that God is the Father of spirits. And whatever is born of God does not sin. Wonderful studies we could go off to on this point. We're told, looking at uh, John 3, 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this, again, is reference back to that which we see in the book of Numbers. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
So just as that situation in the wilderness, everyone who was bitten of these serpents, this disease that would have killed them, if they look at the serpent that's been lifted up on the pole, of course, it's idiomatic of sin being put up on the cross. Our sin, whoever looks at Jesus, will be saved and have eternal life. See, we've all been bitten by sin. We were all as dead. Only by faith in the one remedy that God prescribed can we be saved. And each person has to look to the cross themselves. And of course this verse goes on to the famous verse that we we all know so well, John 3.16. For God, who's the greatest being, so the greatest degree, loved the greatest affection, the world, which is the greatest object of love, that he gave as the greatest act, his only the greatest treasure begotten that's the greatest relationship son that's the greatest gift that whosoever is the greatest company believes the greatest trust in him the greatest object of faith should not perish which is the greatest deliverance but have the greatest assurance everlasting the greatest promise life which is the greatest blessing. Incredible verse. Verse 36 tells us, He that believes in the Son of God has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Interesting verse, because it's a very important issue. If we accept Christ as everlasting life, if we reject Christ, the wrath of God abides on us. So many people go around telling sinners, Oh, God loves you. This verse tells us that if people have rejected Christ, God's wrath abides on them. You know, we need to be very honest in our preaching. You know, too many of the perishing are perishing because they don't know they're perishing. Let me just read that again. Too many of the people who are perishing are perishing because they don't know they're perishing. And one of our responsibilities is to let them know they're perishing. Because unless they know they need a saviour, they won't cry out to him. If we go around telling them, God loves you, you have a God-shaped hole in your heart, and all those kind of things that we so often hear, all we're going to do is putting plasters on a wounded artery that's ultimately going to kill. Ray Comfort, uh, in chapter 4, just speaking of this situation, the woman at the well, just uses this as a way of saying yeah, this is how we can evangelize also he says the president in scripture is given in John 4 for personal witness you can see Jesus' example with the woman at the well he started in the natural realm and then he swung to the spiritual he started by talking about the water and then he turned it around he brought conviction using the seventh commandment and then revealed himself as the messiah so Ray Comfort says so when I meet someone I talk about the weather I'll talk about sport let them feel a little bit of sanity Get to know them, maybe a joke here and there, and then deliberately swing from the natural to the spiritual. It's just a a way, it's a method that we can use. Jesus uses that particular approach here with the woman at the well. John chapter 5. Well, regarded by some as the most significant chapter in the Gospel of John. We see the healing of the man at Bethesda. And the question is, do we really want Jesus to change our lives? And are we ready for the consequences? We could do a big study looking at some of these things in detail. But Jesus goes head to head against the religious leaders as a result of this miracle and launches four salvos, if you like, four attacks against the Jews to prove his deity. He calls four witnesses to testify and then he pronounces his verdict on the Jews. Though these kind of four salvos are really... The first of all, Jesus speaks of the relationship between the Father and the Son as the first evidence. He speaks of the mission of the Son, the authority of the Son. And then these four witnesses are called that he uses to demonstrate who he is. And then finally the verdict is pronounced. These things, I just encourage you to, to take time to go study them further. But another interesting thing that we see in John 5 that we just need to mention as we kind of fly past this... That Jesus speaks there of the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. Everybody is going to be part of one of these two groups. Now in scripture, the resurrection of the life of life is also referred to as the resurrection of the just, or the first resurrection, or a better resurrection in Hebrews 11, uh, or the resurrection of the dead, uh, specifically in 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 3. 
and so on. It's a category rather than a single event that takes place. And there's a number of scriptures that make that very clear to us. Christ, of course, is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead, then those that is coming at the time of the rapture, and then there'll be tribulation martyrs at the second coming, and so on, uh, that are resurrected, that receive new bodies. In contrast to that, the resurrection of damnation is the resurrection of the unjust. This will be a single event, and it will take place at the great white throne judgment that is yet to come, recorded for us in Revelation 20. Again, it's a resurrection to destruction. Those two resurrections that are mentioned. Now, those four witnesses that I was talking about that are called to testify It's John the Baptist is the first one. Then the works of Jesus themselves are called to bear witness to who Jesus is. The father's comments and and view of his son are also brought then before the religious leaders. And finally, the scriptures which speak of Jesus are all called to present to the religious leaders who Jesus is. So they're left in no doubt. All they can do is accept or reject. And then... We read the verdict. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? And Jesus effectively turns away from them from this point. Chapter 6, we've got the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, interestingly, turns down the chance to be king. He walks on the water rather than build on his popularity. He lays out his terms and conditions for the kingdom. And of course, seeker-friendly, Jesus is not. He's not a motivational speaker either. So much of that we see in the church today. In chapter 6 also, the issue of true and false conversions is addressed. And we get this interesting thing where Jesus speaks of eating his flesh, drinking his blood. And people get sometimes very confused about these things. Let me just make a couple of comments. Jesus, of course, is not advocating cannibalism. In Exodus, the Passover lamb was to be eaten by way of identification. In Leviticus, the flesh of the sin or the trespass offering was to be eaten. To eat the flesh was to be identified with the offering, acknowledging its death in place of the guilty. Therefore, to eat the flesh of Christ is to be identified with his death in our place. And that's what Jesus was saying. It means admitting that we're guilty. Why does the blood make atonement? Well, quite simply, the blood speaks of life. Without blood, we die. On Calvary, Jesus' blood was shed for the sins of the world, and his life is given in exchange for yours and mine. So God's mercy and justice are both satisfied. So this idea of drinking his blood, again, is identification with his life. On the third day, he rose to new life, so that all who are in Christ also have new life. The flesh of Christ, therefore, speaks of his sacrificial death in our place. It requires our acknowledging of our sin. And by implication, it necessitates our dying to our old life. And the blood of Christ, therefore, speaks of his life. If we're partakers of his life, we'll be beneficiaries of his new life. John chapter 7 Jesus attends the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a wonderful little snippet just to quickly share with you. First of all, he goes, he's trying to keep a low profile, but inevitably Jesus ends up teaching. Of course, anybody filled with God's Spirit can't remain quiet. Of course, it's not his own doctrine, but God that he's teaching. And the question that's starting to be asked is, who is Jesus and where did he come from? Of course, there's a question for each of us to settle. But Jesus then makes this outrageous claim. And because of this, the debate and obviously therefore the division also intensify. Now, at the Feast of Tabernacles, um, there'll be this eighth day of assembly, typically. The last day of the feast. Uh, there's the seven days of feast and, feast and then this one day at the end. And it was a specific day where they'd remember the wilderness wanderings and so on. And during the feast, they'd pour water on a rock in memory of the rock that was at Horeb, where the water had come from. Well, we get to the last day of the feast. Typically, a religious leader, one of the the rabbis, would go down to the pool of Siloam. They'd get some water throughout the feast and they'd pour it uh, on on this altar, on this rock that they had, in in memory of this. And they would do this for the seven days. But on the last day, they didn't draw water to indicate that their thirst was not yet satisfied, i.e. the Messiah hadn't yet come. And as a result, they'd read Isaiah 12. So Jesus then, quoting Isaiah 12, we read this. Just read from Isaiah. Therefore, 
Uh, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall you say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. As they look at Jesus, as he's making this declaration, I wonder what they thought. In the last day we read chapter 7 verse 37. That great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. It's an incredible statement that Jesus is saying, he's the Messiah. He is the one that will satisfy their thirst. And he's now saying, this idea, come to me and drink. This idea that I am now the one that I'm here in your midst. I will satisfy your thirst. Again, that eighth day, they wouldn't drink. They wouldn't pour this water out. But Jesus says, come to me. I will satisfy this thirst. This longing that you have for the Messiah, I am he. Again, it's easy to miss that as we read it in English. But it's an incredibly powerful statement that Jesus makes that he's the Messiah. Well, chapter 8. Jesus is effectively asked to preside over a kangaroo court. This woman that's called in the act of adultery. Of course, the man isn't brought, is he? You know, where, where was he? What happened? Jesus declines and effectively dismisses the jury. Those that were presumed guilty, i.e. the woman, are set free. And those who are presumed innocent, those that have brought this charge, are found that they're condemned. As another thing we see in John chapter 8, Jesus restates his mission. And of course we get the, well, who gave you permission? Question that's again, and then he restates his authority. uh, And talks about their parentage, speaking of his own father, and then speaking of their father, the devil. Uh, chapter 7 and 8 really are a demonstration of his complete control. They want to take Jesus, they want to arrest him, they want to silence him, but they can't because it wasn't yet time. Jesus had an appointment to keep. We'll look at that next week. John chapter 9, well, opens with another miracle. This is actually the sixth of seven. And it's really a masterclass in how to witness and what to expect. The miracles we see there, the water to wine, healing the nobleman's son, Bethesda, the healing, 5,000, the walking on water, and then this one here we're looking at now, the healing of the blind man. And the last one we'll see is the raising of Lazarus. As we jump in to chapter 10, the narrative just continues. And this is kind of three months later on seemingly in the, in the time scale. And Jesus uses an analogy of a shepherd the shepherd and the sheep to demonstrate his own relationship with those who are his this is commonly used in scripture of course we're familiar with psalm 23 and so on but this chapter contains for you and for you and i two of the most important verses in the whole bible we read i'm just going to pick it up from verse 27 my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me and i give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand my father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand i and my father are one now just look at these verses 28 and 29 jesus promises to give us eternal life if it's eternal it can never end we can't do anything to forfeit it Because it's eternal. If that which we've been given is eternal, it has to, by definition, go on forever. It can't be rescinded, withdrawn. We can't cancel it, annul it in any way. This is a gift that is given to those who are in Christ. And notice what we're told. They shall never perish. What a great comfort. As you and I stumble through life, as we stumble and we make judgment errors, we sin, we do all sorts of things, we look back and we... We chide ourselves over. We regret things that we do. Well, God says you'll never perish. Because it's not based upon what you could do before you were saved. And it's not based on what you can do once you're saved. It was based upon the blood of Christ. I'll never perish. And this, this lovely statement, neither shall any man, any man, that includes yourself. You can't pluck yourself out of Christ's hand. And then verse 29, my father which gave them me, notice that God has given them to Jesus, is greater than all. And then no man, once again, is able to pluck them out of 
my Father's hand. What a great, comforting verse for us. You know, this work that the Lord has undertaken, this great work of sanctification, is something that he's doing by his grace. And sometimes we get frustrated with ourselves and we think, this week I'm going to try so hard to obey. You can almost imagine Jesus just looking down and smiling. Thinking, oh, give it a go. See if you get past Monday afternoon. You can't do it. You can't be righteous. I can't be righteous. I can't be holy this week. Yeah, I can start out, I can leave church on a Sunday morning with the intention that I want to be. I can think, right, I'm determined now. <laughs> Filthy rags. That's what Jesus calls them. That's what God calls them. That's our efforts. One of the most wonderful things to experience in our Christian lives is when we come to that place of actually believing that Christ has done it all. That we can't do anything. And when we just realize that, and we just give up on ourselves, and we put all our trust in Him, wow, what a deliverance! What a Savior! So, a brief summary as we come to the end of the first section. We're going to do the second section next week, so don't worry, we're not going to, we're going to run through the end. We're going to do the second section of the Gospel of John next week. But the, the first part of this, Jesus had come as light of the world. We were in spiritual darkness, blind to our true spiritual condition. So, you see, rather than just take it on faith, Jesus provided many witnesses to attest to his being the Son of Man, the Messiah. And things that, again, even on the surface we might miss, but as you start to study the Gospel, and you read through these chapters up to chapter 10, you realize that time and time again, Jesus was presenting so clearly that he was God in the flesh. He was the Messiah. The Jews recognized what he was saying, but they rejected his claim to be God. And consequently, they sought to stone him for blasphemy. Anybody that says that Jesus never claimed to be God has clearly never read John's Gospel. Because the whole basis as to why the religious leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus was because of blasphemy. Because they recognized he was claiming to be God. But as we move forward, there's two unresolved issues. One of them is the reaction of the Jews to Jesus. Their their hatred had been festering. So the question is, one of the issues is, what are they going to do? How do they deal with this individual who's claiming to be God, who's doing these miracles? So that's one of the things that we see dramatically portrayed as we go forward. And then the secrecy surrounding Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, if you've noticed, all the way through, there's a deliberate suppression of who Jesus is. Now, Jesus demonstrated these things as we've seen, but all the way, it's been that Don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. Whenever Jesus was doing a miracle, see that you tell no man. Even the miracle at Cana in Galilee. My time is not yet come. See, the Jews had actually tried to force a public confession. But Jesus wasn't going to play their game. Again, the issue was quite simply one of timing. And both of those things will reach their crescendo in chapter 11 and chapter 12. In a very dramatic way. So, Next week, what we're going to do, we're going to take it from here. We're going to look at the second half of this incredible gospel. We'll see the conclusion of these things as we look at just one week of history that John details for us. So we'll take it from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you that John has recorded these things for us. And Father, we pray that you impress upon our hearts the lessons that you have for us here. Father, even that very first miracle, just pointing out to us again that we were just empty vessels. We had nothing. We were spiritually dead. We were a stone. Our hearts were hardened. And yet you pour into us that living water that we're made alive. You satisfy that hunger, that thirst that we had. Jesus, you've caused us to bring forth fruit. Just as those vessels wherein the water was poured, then brought forth this wonderful wine. 
Lord, so our lives are to bring forth fruit if they're in you, if we abide in you. So, Father, we thank you for these things. Father, we thank you that we're never beyond your reach, Lord, wherever we've been, whatever our background. Lord, there's a way for every individual to come to know you as Lord and Savior. And, Lord, that everyone has enough faith to accept and to believe. So, Lord, these things, we just, again, pray. Impress them upon our hearts. Lord, give us a greater hunger and desire to to know more of you through reading your word together. Father, just bless us as we go from here this day. Keep us close, we ask. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.